Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, we'll get a tour of the world's largest collection of nativity scenes on display now in Washington, Iowa. And I'll also talk with the collector, historian Michael Zoss. But first, when you hear the name Jane Smiley, her Pulitzer Prize-winning epic novel, A Thousand Acres, is likely the first thing that comes to mind. But over the course of her career, she has produced an incredibly diverse body of work, including satire, biographies, and young adult fiction. Her latest book, A Dangerous Business, can be described in many ways. I'm going to go with feminist Western murder mystery, and it is full of surprises. Jane Smiley is on the line with me now. Hello, Jane. Hi, how are you? Great. Thank you so much for coming back to Talk of Iowa. And I want to start with the quote that you start your novel with. The quote is, uh, between you and me, being a woman is a dangerous business and don't let anyone tell you otherwise. The (laughs) quote obviously gives the book its title. It is also attributed to a character in the book, which makes me feel like it's something that you really felt uh, needed to be said and repeated. Tell me why you decided to start there. Well, the... (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I just thought it was appropriate to the times that we are living in, um, but also to the times that the main characters of the novel, uh, Eliza and Jean, are also were also living in, which is the 1850s in Monterey, California. Now, the odd thing about Monterey in the 1850s was that it the relations between men and women were fairly cordial because there were not very many women compared to the number of men. So the men knew they had to um, be careful. But, um, you know, it was the 1850s and I live in this area is um, a very rough area in terms of landscape, rough and beautiful. So, you know, anything could happen. And things had happened to Eliza and her husband and people she knew. So they were just, you know, what's the word? They're just reflecting on what's going on and how their lives are. Well, when I think about Westerns historically, there are always, not always, but most of the time, there are a lot of really uh, big things missing from Westerns because they were told usually from a white male perspective. And we know that the West is and was incredibly diverse. We know that there were Mm -hmm. many indigenous people living in the West. And that relationship is usually um, caricatured, I think, in many ways. Mm -hmm. We know that it was a time of slavery and controversy over slavery and we know that that women who were living in the West lived incredibly rugged lives. So it feels like you have written a Western that <laughs> that you've taken away all of the big blind spots. Was that one of your goals? <laughs> well, I don't know what my goals were. I, I walked around Monterey, which is a really beautiful uh, spot. And it's also all the buildings in Monterey from the 1850s and the middle, basically the middle of the uh, 19th century, 
all those buildings are really well preserved. And so the streets are the same. They have the same names pretty much. And so when you're walking around there, you just have this feeling that you can understand what it felt like to be in this area. And it's a place that I love. And I just thought, okay, let's do it. Let's, um, we, we knew that, we know that there was at least one or two brothels and that sex work was a way of getting by and maybe the only way that women without husbands had to get by. So I just said, okay, let's try it. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about the two main characters. And let's start with Eliza. I mean, she's really at the heart of the novel. And she's, what, about 21 years old? She grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and was forced into a marriage mm-hmm. that that her parents thought was probably good for her, but it was also good for them. Tell me a little bit about Eliza and her background. Well, her parents are um, Calvinists. And she has lived an extremely circumscribed life. Um, She doesn't have any brothers and sisters. And she has been told what to do her whole life. She did have a fondness for a local guy, but he happened to be, of all things, Irish, which her parents very much disapproved of. So a guy comes along um, who, who worms his way into her parents' affections and they basically just marry her off to him. And she's only 18 when this happens. Um, and this was not an uncommon thing in, in the mid 19th century. He wants to get rich uh, by going to California and get making a lot of gold in the gold rush. But by the time he gets to Monterey, the gold rush has basically moved off to San Francisco and, and the mountain areas. Monterey was an interesting town, but it wasn't what people expected when they first settled it. Um, they expected it maybe to be a, a wonderful harbor for lots of ships, but the way that the bay is, um, the way that the geographical location of the bay and it's the way it's shaped <clears throat> makes the winds very un- uneven and unpredictable. And so sailing ships had a hard time in the bay. So they so San Francisco um, benefited from that. Um, there are some places that are farmable, but there are many, many mountains and ravines and um, other places that are would would have been very difficult to settle. So Monterey remained somewhat prosperous, and it also had um, a Spanish American population, and they always got along. And there was a wonderful mission down in Carmel, but. Any, but most of the um, prosperity moved north. And so the people who let, were left behind here just had to make, make the best of what they had. And 
Eliza being forced into that marriage at the age of 18, of course, many women were forced into marriage at younger ages um, yeah. during that time. But she was forced into this marriage with a man she didn't know, and really her parents didn't know. He takes her across the country. And after they get to California, they get to Monterey. He's murdered um, in a bar fight. Yes. Not that long after they arrive. And uh, you, uh, then Eliza, goes to work in a brothel. Uh, as you said, that was one of the only ways that, that a single woman could make a living. And you just... But dis- it's also, let me say, add this. It's also true that the woman who runs the brothel is maybe the first person who's ever really been kind to her. And so she finds that woman, whose name is Mrs. Parks, to be a decent, trustworthy person. So she wants to maybe connect with her. She also finds becoming a prostitute to be empowering. This is the first time in her life she's (laughs) ever had any power. (laughs) She does. Um, One of the great things about Mrs. Parks is that she wants to make sure that her girls, as she calls them, are are protected. So she hires a guy to watch over everything and make sure that he can, a guy who's big enough so that he can kick out the bums and the violent types. Um, she gives them various instructions for how to alert uh, the, the, the guard that something bad is going on. She she doesn't, you know, she wants her her business to prosper. And that it that means keeping the girls safe. Now, of course, as I said, Eliza finds that to be empowering and and she finds this woman who's an incredible role model in many ways for her and and you do a lovely job I, I feel like exploring their relationship. We know that sex work is not always empowering and not always safe. And, of course, it's a very Mm. real part of the world today. Did you have any concerns about creating this world that that really does paint it as this safe harbor for Eliza? Well, it's like any job. They vary from place to place and from time to time and depending on who's the boss. Um, But I felt that it was given what I learned about Monterey history and what it was like here in the 1850s, I felt like it was perfectly plausible that it should be this way. She also makes a friend whose name is Jean, who works Mm -hmm. also in a brothel, but it is a very different type of brothel. It (laughs) is a brothel that caters to the small population of women of Monterey Mm -hmm. who are looking for services of other women. Mm -hmm. Is that something that that you were able to find evidence of in Monterey's history? Not in particular, but I did hand the draft over to a local historian and I asked him if he thought uh, this was okay to put in and he said it was he had he had no evidence that such a brothel had existed but he felt that it was completely plausible and so just do it right and probably not the kind of thing that necessarily anybody would have kept records about exactly exactly I mean 
Yeah, I think a lot of the stuff that I write about in this book is stuff that people wouldn't have written uh, into the record. Right. But there's so many things about Monterey history that are interesting. And one of them is that around the time that Eliza is here, a couple came uh, on a boat from Australia and not only did they come, they brought all of the wood and all of the materials for their house. And so that still exists. The, oh, wow. the building that they built with all this wood that they brought from Australia in, I think it was 1849. Right. We're going to have to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. We will talk more about a dangerous business and the history of Monterey and a lot of other things as well in a moment. My guest is author Jane Smiley. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in just about 15 minutes, I will visit with historian Michael Zoss as he shows me around his collection of nativity scenes. He has the world's largest collection, 2,540 of them. With me right now is Pulitzer Prize-winning author Jane Smiley. Her latest novel is called A Dangerous Business. It's a feminist Western murder mystery. Uh, Jane, I thought about describing it as a more sophisticated Nancy Drew in a brothel. Um, <laughs> That's okay with me. I loved Nancy Drew when I was growing up. All right. And we've been talking about Eliza and Jean. And, and these are the two young women at the heart of this novel. They both work in brothels in uh, Monterey, California. We've talked mostly about Eliza, who was a young woman forced into an unhappy marriage. And um, after her husband is murdered, she she takes up the sex trade and um, she becomes friends with Jean, who is working in a brothel that serves the women of Monterey. And Jean is a, a fascinating, warm, wonderful, creative <laughs> character. She's also uh, maybe gender fluid in many ways. She's clearly a creative individual and she also has... She either has a very active imagination or she's really seeing ghosts. Tell me a little <laughs> bit more about Jean. Um, I think that Jean, Jean, Jean made me laugh. She was funny. Um, I think she has a great imagination. And there are stories of ghosts in Monterey in, in that period. And there is even a tour you can take called Ghosts of Monterey. And I just thought, well, why not? You know, a lot of people believed in ghosts in the uh, 1850s. And even though I don't, I thought, well, Jean can. For sure. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about Monterey as well, because I mean, clearly the the setting has inspired you so much. And I know you wanted to read a little uh, bit from the book that, that gives us a little insight into the setting. Yeah, I, it's not very long. And I it's, a, it's one of my favorite bits. Um, so anyway, they have 
rented a, a pair of horses and gone up into the hillside to look around. And now they're on their way back. The ride down had its moments. It was almost dark. There was rustling among the trees. A bit of the path broke away into a ravine as the bay horse stepped on it. He didn't actually stumble, but he did start a bit and shift his weight. However, the horses were hungry for their fodder and they seemed to know the way home. They walked a little faster. Toward the bottom of the trail, Eliza's gray caught up to Jean's bay, but the trail was wide enough so they could walk together. Then Jean asked what Eliza knew she would. Did you see the ghosts? No, where were they? Among the trees, lots of them. Could you tell who they were? Either Rumson or Olone, Indians? Jean nodded. And why not, thought Eliza, since the Indians would have lived here forever. Somehow the thought made her sad, but it also reassured her. Jean's ghosts were always reassuring. They walked along. And then after they had returned the horses to the stable and it was late enough that Eliza had to go straight to Mrs. Park's establishment without changing her gown. Mrs. Parks looked her up and down, handed her $4, told her the name of a seamstress on Tyler and said that Eliza should indulge herself. She suggested muslin, some pleasant dark color, a silvery blue perhaps. That is Jane so. Smiley reading just a little <laughs> bit from A Dangerous Business. And you really dove into research about Monterey. Obviously, it's a place that you love. Oh, yeah. It's a place that fascinates you. What kind of research did you do? Well, there's a the Monterey Public Library has a history room. So I did um, historical research um, there. Um, I consulted with a local historian. And, you know, like we all do, I looked on the Internet. But my favorite way was just to walk around town. Um, there's one street, I think it's Jefferson. If you walk all the way up Jefferson, you can really get a sense of the houses that were, being, were built then. And then you walk up the hill and you get into the pine forest. And it's so fragrant and wild. And it's, it's wonderful to walk around up there, too. The great thing about the peninsula is that every little community is different. So you, the, the, where I live at Carmel Valley, that's sort of the old cowboy town. Um, Monterey is the old fishing and, uh, and um, you know, sailors and all that shipping, the sort of commercial center. Carmel by the sea is where the wealthy people lived and, and the houses are very eccentric and interesting. And then there's Pebble Beach, which is in the middle of the fog. And then there's Big Sur. And then there's um, just so many different places. There's, then there's Salinas. So it's, a, it's like a mini vacation. You know, you get up, you put a couple of sweaters in the car and you go looking around. So I really I have enjoyed it here. And uh, you, you mentioned 
horses in the um, mm-hmm. in the <laughs> the little excerpt that you read. There are lots of horses in this book, and there are lots of horses in a lot of your books, Jane, because yeah. obviously they they are a big passion of yours. But I found that to be just one of the most enjoyable details of the book, and and you never fail to introduce us to every horse that, <laughs> that we meet <laughs> in a little bit. It's just a little bit about each one. Um, well, one of the interesting things about Monterey is um, that right across the parking lot from the local Trader Joe's is a place called Cooper Molera. And I put that in there because they, that, that's a very, the backyard is very well preserved in there. It was, it's a pleasant garden. But the funny thing in, about it is that there, the guy who built the place and owned it was a wealthy guy and, and he kept his racehorses in that corral that's now across from Trader Joe's. <laughs> <laughs> so I do have the girls go look, peek through the um, the uh, wall, the wooden, you know, the wooden fence, right? To pe- to peek at the horses. So, but if you are in that spot, you can walk up the hill along this little rivulet where there's incredible amounts of flowers and weeds and little and I mean it's just you're in the middle of Monterey you're in the middle of a city and it's wild there's another spot not far from the big mall where the Macy's is and you walk down from the mall and you're you're in town and then you turn up a particular road and you feel like you're in the middle of the uh, you're in the middle of nowhere and it just makes me, it fascinates me the way the landscape is here. And Eliza also seems to be fascinated by the landscape, something <laughs> something that you have in common with your character. Yeah, uh, she likes to explore. Yeah. Uh, we haven't talked about the murder mystery part of this at all. And uh, what happens is that some of the young sex workers in the community go missing. And mm-hmm. it turns out that someone has been murdering them. And so there's, I mean, it's really a book about a serial killer in some mm-hmm. ways or about someone committing uh, serial murders. And uh, the girls, the women at the center of the novel, Eliza and Jean, are inspired by the books of Edgar Allan Poe. Tell me about the the role of Poe in all of this. Well, they're inspired. Jean is a a reader, and she has read Poe, even though Eliza hasn't uh, at this point. Jean's slightly older than Eliza. And one of Jean's favorite stories is Murders in the Rue Morgue. And so when they, and they have to decide that they're going to do something about it because nobody else is going to. There was a sheriff um, and there were vigilantes, but they, they didn't have, they weren't that interested in what was happening to these sorts of girls. So Eliza and Jean decide, in some sense, for their own safety, to try and figure out what's been going on. And Jean's the one who suggests that maybe if they went about it the way the characters in Murders of the Rue Morgue do, then um, they might come up with an idea. 
And it's, it's, it's fairly simple. She just says, you have, we have to be logical in the way that we think about this. And, and so they try to work it out that way. They are at sometimes, I think that they're excited by the mm-hmm. idea that they're sort of living out this fantasy, although it's very real and the danger is very real. Mm-hmm. They're, I, I feel like they don't think very much about their own vulnerability. There are a couple moments in particular where mm-hmm. Eliza realizes how incredibly vulnerable she is. But they seem to be a little bit protected from the idea of their own mortality. Well, I would say that Jean is adept at um, protecting herself. And I would say that Eliza has faith that Jean could at least fight back. Um, But when they have fears and then when, but when they start getting up and moving around and and um, checking things out, their fears sort of slip away and are replaced by curiosity. There is a murder that takes place in the novel that um, they think might be connected to these murders, but... And you never tell us exactly what happened, but I don't think it is connected to these murders. A a woman is murdered in her home, and um, we don't really know exactly what happened. People have various theories about it, but it does underline just how incredibly vulnerable women were at Mm -hmm. that time. And of course, so many women still are living with that kind of vulnerability and Again, no one really seems to care about the truth of what happened in that situation. Well, it is solved, but it's because it's not part of or doesn't seem to be part of or maybe I shouldn't. I'm going to stop. I'm not going to talk about that. Okay, no, no, no spoilers. You can't, you can't give it away. All right, and and there are there are plenty of surprises in the novel. Um, I felt like the style of this novel was very different from everything else that I've ever read by you, and I haven't read absolutely everything that you've ever written. You write a lot, so in my defense, yeah. I've read a lot of what you've written. Tell me about the style of the novel and and what what you wanted to accomplish with it. Well, if you're writing a historical novel, you have two choices. One is to try to mimic the way that the style would have been if you had been writing at that time. Or another one is to tell the story about that time, but to use a modern style. And I've always believed in using a more archaic style. and if you haven't read the Greenlanders, you don't know what an archaic style is. <laughs> <laughs> but the style of the 18, people talked about things and used different words in the 1850s than, it, than they use now. And so I had to um, make the way that they thought about themselves, the way that they expressed themselves, and the way that they looked at the world appropriate for the time. Um, so that's what I that's what I always try to do. How do you do that? What's your process to to try to change the way? I mean, you would have to change the way you, that you think in some ways. Well, the main thing you do is just read a lot of books that were written in that time, 
And then the style sort of just goes into your head. And you and then you do your best to mimic that, but to include the plot and the characters and the thoughts of the characters um, as best you can. And it's always a slippery slope. I mean, when I wrote the Greenlanders and tried to mimic medieval Icelandic style translated into English, it was incredibly frustrating for about the first 50 pages. And then when I got used to it, it was like the the whole book was then delivered from far, far away. Mm. And and that's true. If As soon as you decide what style you're going to use, once you get used to it, then it just keeps going. I did the same thing in The All True Travels and Adventures of Liddy Newton. So... So I, I like to do that. It's fun. It's a way to visit the past. So I, I mentioned um, the incredible diversity of your body of work. We've had talking horses. We've had humor and satire and biography <laughs> and tragedy and epics. I mean, so many different things. Uh, what's next for you? Well, I am waiting to get uh, the manuscript back from my editor. I decided... I had spent a bunch of time writing about writing a nonfiction book called Five Mothers about motherhood as it evolves through the years. And it was based on my family, you know, and, and my mothers. And then I got sort of into the editorial process and I looked at it and I said, you know, nobody really cares about this stuff. And then I was in St. Louis in uh, 1917, 1970, <laughs> 2017, yeah. for my 50th high school reunion. And an interviewer uh, for St. Louis radio station asked me if I'd ever set a book in St. Louis, because that's where I grew up. And I said, oh. no. <laughs> so I thought, okay, I'm going to write a book about a young woman who grows up in St. Louis, who's exactly my age but who becomes a musician rather than a writer. And it's going to be a novel. And I love music. And if I, I might have become a musician if I could have made myself practice, but I couldn't. So I decided to write that. So I wrote that. And um, that's the, probably the next one that's coming out. All right. Well, just for the record, I'm looking forward to that, but I would have read Five Mothers too. So. <laughs> Oh, thank you. <laughs> Jane Smiley, thank you so much for talking with me today. Well, thanks for having me. And hello to everybody back in Iowa City and Ames and the rest of and northern Iowa and all those places. Well, I hope we get to see you here again in the not too distant future. I've been yeah. talking with Jane Smiley. Her latest novel is A Dangerous Business. It is a feminist Western murder mystery. It's a fun, fast read. And coming up in just a few minutes, I will visit with historian Michael Zoss. He's going to show us all around his collection of nativity scenes. He has 2,540 of them on display in Washington, Iowa. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. This IPR podcast is supported by Cultivating Compassion, the Dr. Richard Deming Foundation, fostering causes that enrich the community, generate understanding, and cultivate compassion, including above and beyond cancer. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. It is a Christmas tradition in many homes, setting up the nativity set, figurines that create a physical representation of the Christmas story, Mary, Joseph, and baby Jesus in a stable. Nativity sets come in many different forms, and it seems likely that historian Michael Zoss has more nativity sets in his personal collection than anyone else in the world. He has more than 2,500 of them, and they are all on display, all of them, right now at Hills Bank in Washington. They'll be on display through the end of January, and you can stop by and see them during business hours. Michael Zoss is one of Iowa's favorite historians, well-known to many from the award-winning documentary Saving Brinton, and I am here at Hills Bank (laughs) in Washington, Iowa, with Mike Zoss right now, surrounded by nativity sets. Mike, take me back to the beginning. How did this start for you, collecting nativity sets? Well, as most collections start, you don't know you're starting. I got my first nativity set in 1952. Uh, My aunt gave it to me, a nativity set. It cost 25 cents. I still have it in an original box. But you couldn't move the pieces around. And as soon as I got my own house, I bought one that I could move the pieces around. I don't know. That was fun for me to do and to decide that the wise men should be coming later and all that. When I was growing up, I definitely treated our nativity set kind of like a dollhouse. Mm -hmm. And and we also had to glue on the head of one of the wise men every year. I'm sure I'm not alone in having grown up with with some flaws in my nativity scene. Vance Poulton, who helped tremendously set this up, was my reconstruction expert. And he glued on many, many heads. The only thing that he glued on more than heads was uh, staffs. It seems like staffs would stay with the shepherds. So, All right. So it started with two nativity sets right. in your life. Tell me how it grew. <laughs> well, when we got the Ainsworth Opera House the first year, we decided we need to do something to get people into the opera house. And I don't know how we decided, but I had a few nativity sets, and we borrowed some. We had about 100 on display. We had many people come, and I just thought, well, good. So next year, we had a lot more than 100, and we didn't borrow any. I think if you keep nativities in tight boxes, they reproduce. And, <laughs> and so it just, just grew. Well, and looking around this collection, I said more than 2,500. It's exactly 2,540. 40. Wow. And there are no two alike. You don't have there duplicates? Are, there are a couple that are duplicates, but very few. And my wife thought I shouldn't put out duplicates, but most people aren't going to notice them <laughs> <laughs> that are duplicates. And there's uh, even ones that start out with the same mold or something. By the time they're finished and hand-painted, they're not the same. This is the first time this entire collection has been on display. It's the first time and the last time. I don't anticipate doing it again. I'm old, and this took five weeks. Wow. And, and, and you didn't work alone. No. And five weeks now is a large percentage of the life I have left, and so I'm not going to probably devote it again. Plus, it's very hard to find a space to do it. Right. Well, in Hills Bank volunteered to allow yeah. you to set up this collection it in was, their it space. It was their idea. All right. And they gave you every nook and cranny of this building. I, I was just back in a storage closet that's <laughs> yeah. full of nativity sets. Well, in there on the second story out in the lobby, 
and they're everywhere we could put them. <laughs> and they are beautifully displayed. It, it, there are so many, but it doesn't feel crowded. I can see every single one. And the sheer variety is overwhelming. I mean, we're standing in a conference room right now, and there's a nativity set from Russia that is in the, the form of matryoshka dolls that you can you can stack and put together. There's one from Mexico that's made out of tin that you can fold flat. Two from Mexico <laughs> that are made out of tin. We've got glass. We've got ceramics, porcelain. There's so many different, and wood. This stable was made from the end of a beam from my great-grandfather's barn. Oh, beautiful. So in the collection is from El Salvador, the, the, the this pe- nativity, the, the pieces. Figures. Right, and many of these are handmade. Right, and then this is a Czechoslovakia one that tends to be more bright than some from some countries that tend to be duller. The colors and nativities are very symbolic in European nativities mary is always in blue or purple for royal mm-hmm. joseph is in brown for insignificant and if he is in purple that person probably lost their job of painting because that was that was just something that was not to occur in hispanic ones sometimes mary is in red which is an honored color in hispanic culture but would say she was a prostitute in in europe wow. so the traditions don't transfer between cultures, but I just like, I say it's 2,500 different ways to tell the same story. And whatever it takes to make that the birth of Jesus story important to that community, it's those things that I think make this uh, special. You have put the country of origin on every nativity scene, at least all the ones that you know about, and I noticed that a lot of the nativity sets come from Peru. And that is one of the main, if not the main export from the nation of Peru is nativities. And we get a lot of them from China, but they are just mass produced for the U.S. market. Peru makes them and they still look Peruvian. Yeah. And, and they're uh, so they, they aren't necessarily intended to be exported, although they're a popular export. Yeah. And, and they're just the great detail. And almost every one of the Peruvian sets is completely hand done. Oh, it's wonderful. And you just removed a hat from one of the three wise men. <laughs> That's wonderful. They have removable hats. I, before we leave this room, I want to ask you about a nativity scene that is made in Iowa that is made out of a book. Can you tell me about that one? It's a book that uh, has been sawn out in the form of Joseph and Mary and the baby and a star and they just cut it out of the book the pages of the book and the book is the bridges of Madison County (laughs) (laughs) you can't get more Iowa than that can you except that you do out here let's walk out into the lobby (laughs) and then something else that uh, is cultural in Europe usually Mary is the only woman in Hispanic countries, Joseph sometimes is the only man. That the wise people are women, the shepherds are women. But that would never work in Europe. But in South America, I have sets where Joseph's the only man. Okay, so now we're out in the lobby, 
and the largest nativity set <laughs> is on display up at the counter of the bank. And this one is very special and very Iowa. Tell me about this one. This is one that uh, a girl that I went to high school with founded in a garage, I think, in Weaver, Iowa, and gave it to the collection. And Mary is Donna Reed from Denison, Iowa. And I had people here earlier that are from Denison, and they talked about knowing Donna Reed. But uh, Donna Reed's daughter, who lives in Iowa City, said that she thinks that the other people in the uh, nativity are people that were actors with Donna Reed in Hollywood in the 1940s. Oh, interesting. So it's, a, a, I think, a very a special set, and it may be the only surviving copy of that. Right. Well, I recognize Donna Reed, but I don't recognize any of the others. How about you, Mike? No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> Their fame doesn't endure. Well, and, of course, Donna Reed is a very important part of the Christmas season for millions of people right. because they watch her in It's a Wonderful Life every year. Mike, you have a story for every single one of these nativity sets, pretty much. But is there one or two in particular that you'd like to give me the backstory on? Well, the ones that I would say are my favorite are not necessarily because of the set, but of the situation in which it became part of the collection. I like the, my favorite one. is my first one that I got in 1952. But... Um, if special people make one for the collection, that makes it special. Or if people uh, had a lady in Kelowna that rode a donkey up a mountain in um, Ethiopia to get a nativity from a monastery. Well, that's dedication. I've never yeah. ridden a donkey anywhere, let alone <laughs> to get somebody else a nativity. There is still time. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a wonderful little set over here that your son made for you yes, out of clothespins. Out of clothespins when he was about five or six, I think. And our daughter has brought some from some of her travels. My wife has made some that are in the collection. And the materials are, are so uh, important because like if you, a set from Haiti is almost always made out of an oil drum because they have no natural resources. And... Niall O'Connor from Iowa City made a set for the collection out of Legos. <laughs> I love that. And there's, there's a, one of your top five favorites, right. although I'm sure that top five is very <laughs> fluid, yes. is right here. And this one must have been mass produced because the country of origin is China, but it is unique. The um, Mary, Joseph, and the baby are all black or African. It's hard to, to say in this setting, but... Joseph's holding baby Jesus, which is pretty unusual. Very unusual. How unusual is it? Well, out of the 2540 that we have, there's about five where Joseph's holding the baby. Wow. Plus in this one, <clears throat> probably the skin tone of that nativity is closer to what Jesus was than most of them. We have a lot of blonde-haired, blue-eyed Marys, of which there weren't blonde-haired, blue-eyed Marys. Right. And Joseph looks like a good father. Yes. And it was mass-produced in China, but it would have, would have been hand-painted. Almost every nativity has handwork on it. When you decided to display this entire collection and painstakingly brought out all the pieces, were you nervous at all about displaying them in public and pieces going missing? Well, <clears throat> we're displayed in a bank. If somebody walks off with one, we have a film of it 
<laughs> but when we displayed them at the Ainsworth Opera House, which we did for a number of years, we never missed a piece. Wow. People were just always very careful. And if anything ever happened, it was always one of us that did it. It wasn't a guest. But I think people have a reverence for it and an appreciation for the work that they see. And they'll ask, would you hold this up for me or something? Or can I take a picture? And, and we let that. And we've had a number of people come in and video and such. So We talked about the largest nativity scene, which is displayed up by the counter. We also have a collection of very tiny nativity scenes including the smallest, <laughs> and what is that? Is it, is it, part, it supposed to be a pendant for it, a necklace? It would have probably been on a charm bracelet. Okay. And it is, what, three quarters of an inch it's, or so? It is itty bitty. And a lot of the nativities, we send our trash, unfortunately, to other countries. Mm-hmm. And here is a set where in Zimbabwe, the women melt down our trash and then cast nativity figures. And some of these are lead, which I'm sure isn't good for them. But, but we, it, is, it is very, very beautiful. And it's a lot of work. And some of the, the cards is also made out of trash that we send. In the 1950s, they made lots and lots of nativities out of hard plastic. Mm-hmm. But you couldn't move the pieces. But one company... Oh, wow. Did it so, so you it could has- <laughs> uh, scissor mechanism so that you could move the pieces. Nice. Would that have satisfied little Mike, though? It, well, more it so. Better. More it so. Been better. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's walk into the final. Well, not it's not the final room because room after room after room is full. <laughs> well, we have two fairly large Christmas trees. The stands are nativity sets and every ornament on them is a nativity set. This is the biggest room, though, and we see nativity scenes on every table. There's a riser in the middle of the table, so there are nativity scenes back-to-back on the riser in the middle of each table and then lower down on each side of the table. And the floor under the tables is also covered in nativity scenes. It's a little bit dazzling, a little overwhelming. Mike, when people come and visit... What do you want them to take away from seeing this incredible collection? Well, I want them to understand the, the Christmas story. I want them to see how we have added to the Christmas story because most of the things at the nativity we have added, and I might say this is the 800th anniversary of the first nativity. The first nativity was displayed 800 years ago this wow. year by St. Francis of Assisi, and it was to show people who could not read the Christmas story, and the figures were live. And so here, I'm hoping that people feel a little closer to the Christmas story and understand that it is interpreted many different ways, but for the same reason. And at this point in your life, with what is arguably, and maybe you will prove to the Guinness Book of World Records, the largest collection of nativity scenes in the world, you are not actively seeking more nativity scenes, but they do seem to they, be coming to you, they? Don't they they kind of come. Uh, <laughs> um, I added a couple yesterday, and it's special. When people have something that they want to have it here, then that makes it special. In displaying 
all of these nativity scenes at Hills Bank. I know that the employees of the bank have been very helpful and supportive and also have helped you create labels for each one right. of them. And what does that feel like to have all of this organization done and these labels done? When you put them away, the information won't disappear. No. And under each Joseph is a number. And then we keep the labels separate from the pieces, but then I can always match them back up. But we've had a lot of the bank employees help, and the five-year-old daughter of one of the employees came and helped one day. And she says, I set up that activity set. Do you have another activity set for me to set up? And we just let it be that way because nice. that just, it just, you know, that helped it mean something to her. So she set up activity sets. <laughs> That's adorable. <laughs> You said that you'll probably never display all of them together again. What do you hope happens to this collection? Well, I hope somebody walks in and says, I'd like to set up a nativity museum, and I would work with them. Well, Mike Zoss, you're always so generous in sharing the history that you have curated and the collections that you have created over the years and your knowledge. Thank you so much for sharing once again with us. Well, thank you. And I encourage people to come. And if I know there are people coming, I can do a program. Uh, I'm not going to be here all the time. I've been here every day for the last five weeks. And I'm actually going to enjoy the out of doors a little bit now. (laughs) So Merry Christmas to everybody. Historian Michael Zoss, his extraordinary collection of nativity sets, all 2,540 of them will be on display at Hills Bank in Washington, Iowa through the end of January. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe.